Welcome to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal, I studied history and tour guiding, and I live in Palestine with my Palestinian husband and children. I started this podcast during the COVID pandemic in the summer of 2020, and now that tourism is slowly coming back to Palestine, I will continue the podcast bi-weekly. So subscribe on your podcast player and turn on the notifications if you want to be reminded of new episodes. You can also follow Stories from Palestine on Facebook and Instagram, where I will share a virtual soundbite of each new episode. Before I got really sick last week, and I am still recovering, you may still hear that in my voice, I did my first private guided tour to the north with a couple from Singapore. He's a reverend and he asked at the Bible College in Bethlehem for a guide to take him to the north to see some of the important pilgrimage sites. And for me, it was a good chance to practice because finally the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism has announced the exam to become licensed tour guides. So it's taking place at the end of November, at the end of this month. So I'm studying hard, which was not so easy last week when I was sick. I was really overwhelmed with extreme fatigue. So while I was trying to study, I very often found my eyes closing. But I still have two weeks to prepare and I'm really holding now back any requests for work or interviews or other events so that I can really study well and not be distracted from that. And I also have other good news, and that is that I got accepted to the tour guide program in Jerusalem. This will also start at the end of the month. It's a one-year program that includes lectures every week and about 60 excursions that will be done mainly on Sundays to all different sites all around the country. So it's a very comprehensive program. And then eventually I will do an exam with the Israeli Ministry of Tourism. So I will be licensed to work all over historic Palestine. So a lot of studying is coming up again. But I found time to record this episode and I was inspired to talk about those pilgrim sites that we visited around the Lake of Galilee. Not all of them, that would be too much for one episode. But the Lake of Galilee is usually part of any Christian pilgrimage visit to Palestine. And the reason for that is that most of Jesus' ministry, the time that he was active in preaching, and when he did most of his miracles, was in this region. So there are many places around the Lake of Galilee that are visited because of the stories related to the life and the work of Jesus. And I will make this disclaimer again that I personally, I am not a follower of any religion. Actually, the longer I live here in the Holy Land, the less I am attracted to these monotheistic religions because I find them very let's say, exclusive, and I feel that they rather pull people apart than that they make them realize how much we are all connected. But I do appreciate the storytelling around the religions, and those stories are usually really intertwined with the landscape, as well as they have often shaped the landscape. 
especially around the Lake of Galilee. So I'm taking you on a trip, a virtual tour, a guided tour to see some of those pilgrimage sites. And for some of the listeners, the stories that I'll be sharing may be familiar. For others, they may be new. But I will just try to talk about the things that relate to the sites, the sites of interest that we will visit. And yeah, let's start with an introduction of our main character, Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but his parents lived in Nazareth. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they spent about two years in Egypt running away from Herod the Great, who wanted to kill all babies below the age of two, because he heard that the new king of the Jews was born and he was afraid for his own position. So they spent two years in Egypt and then they went back up to Nazareth where they lived. And we don't know much about Jesus' early years until he became around 30 years old and he started his public ministry. And then we read that he got baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River And then from that moment, most of the stories that we read in the Bible, they take place in the area of the Galilee and around the Lake of Galilee. And the Lake of Galilee would be on about a half day's walk from Nazareth. In those days, most people did everything by walking. And so the 30 kilometers between Nazareth and the Lake of Galilee would have been a good six hours walk, probably. The towns where Jesus used to preach in the local synagogues and where he did most of his miracles around the Lake of Galilee were not big towns. They were not the center of the region. They were definitely not the political center. At that time, the region was under Roman rule and the Romans had originally appointed a local client king, King Herod the Great, whose territory was then divided when he died between three of his sons, Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, and Herod Philippi. And each of them ruled a different territory, and they had their own capitals. And the Romans also sent a Roman prefect, that was when they realized that Herod Archelaus was not competent, and the Roman prefect lived in Caesarea on the coast, The most famous of these prefects, by the way, was Pontius Pilate, that you may know from the story of Jesus' crucifixion. He was the one that allowed Jesus to be crucified. He lived in Caesarea. But these are not the cities where Jesus used to go, the big cities. We know that Jesus did go to Jerusalem on several occasions, especially to join the festivals like the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Passover. These were Jewish pilgrimage festivals to the temple, and Jews had to make these, and because Jesus was a Jew, he used to go to Jerusalem. He also used to preach in the temple. He did several miracles in Jerusalem, and he used to criticize the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders. But otherwise, he did not really visit the bigger cities in the area. Maybe it's also because most of the bigger cities were a majority of Gentiles, so non-Jewish population, Greeks, Romans, Edomites, Nabataeans, and other pagans. But then again, his message was not only for the Jewish community, it was really also for the Gentiles. And that becomes clear from some of his teachings and some of his miracles that he also did for non-Jewish people. 
But what is clear to scholars is that Jesus spent his childhood in Nazareth in a very quiet and not important town. Nazareth probably didn't have more than a hundred houses, and that must have been a population of maximum 500 people. Nazareth was a very protected town hidden between the hills of the Galilee, and that was where Jesus stayed until he was ready to start his work of teaching. And then his first miracle was performed when he turned water into wine at a wedding, and that happened in Cana. It was his mother who approached him when she noticed that the wine was finishing and the party had just started. And even though Jesus said that it's not my time yet, he did save the groom's reputation by filling up jars with water and then turning them into wine. And when you drive from Nazareth towards the Sea of Galilee, which is what we did, you pass through a Palestinian town called Kufr Kanna, and there you will find a church that is dedicated to this miracle. And many tourists come here to remember this miracle, but also to repeat their marriage vows. From Kufr Kanna, continuing to the west, you will start seeing the Lake of Galilee from the tops of the hills. And the Lake of Galilee is often called the Sea of Galilee. But it is not a sea, it is a sweet water lake. And it is the lowest sweet water lake in the world. It is about 200 meters below sea level. It is situated in the same rift valley as the Dead Sea, which is about 120 kilometers to the south. And the Dead Sea is even much lower. It is about 430 meters below sea level. And they are connected. The Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea are connected by the Jordan River. So the Jordan River starts in the north of Palestine. It's melting water coming from Jabal Sheikh in the occupied Syrian Golan Heights and water coming from the Dan River, the Hisbani River and the Banyas River. It all passes through an area called the Hula Lake or the Hula Swamps. This is a, a lake in the Rift Valley that was formed by a natural basalt dam, although it was pumped dry by Israel and lost its importance as a lake. But then the Jordan River enters into the Sea of Galilee and it exits south from the Sea of Galilee and then continues to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea doesn't have an outlet. And because of the heat in the area of the Dead Sea and the evaporation, the sea is so salty that there is no life in the Dead Sea except for some bacteria and minerals, so that's why it is called the Dead Sea. But we're talking about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is around 53 kilometers in circumference. It's about uh, 21 kilometer from the north to the southern point, and about 13 kilometers from the western to the eastern point. The lake has several names. It is also known as the Sea of Kinneret, which is named after an important Bronze and Iron Age city that was called Kinneret. It is excavated at Tel El Oraima. And in Arabic, it is referred to as uh, Buhayret Tabariya, and it's named after the town of Tiberias or Tabaria that is on the southwestern side of the lake. 
as we reach the Lake of Galilee, we will start going up to the north. And then from the north, we will start going south and visit all the sites. So we're going to go up completely to the northern part of the Lake of Galilee. And that is where, according to the Bible, Jesus brought some of his disciples from a fishing village that was called Bethsaida. Peter, Andrew, and Philip came from Bethsaida. And according to the Gospels, he also cured a blind man in Bethsaida. He also did one of his most famous miracles just outside of Bethsaida. He fed 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. But this particular miracle is not commemorated at Bethsaida today, but in Tabra. So we will speak about that when we get there. Jesus mentions Bethsaida and two other villages, Chorazin and Capernaum, when he says, Woo to you, Chorazin, woo to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment day than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. These three villages that are often referred to as the evangelical triangle were actually cursed by Jesus because the people there did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, even though he did many miracles in them. But then again, I think most of the time people do not believe in prophets from their own town because they've known them from birth. They've seen them walking around and it's very hard to imagine that they are real messengers of God, real prophets, and especially that they are the long-awaited Messiah. Now, there are actually two sites that have been pointed at for maybe having been the Bethsaida of the time of Jesus. One is an archaeological site a few kilometers northeast of the lake, and it's known as Atel, and this is where most people go for visits. This has, for a long time, since 1839, been the site that people thought to be Bethsaida because they excavated houses where they found things that showed that people in the time of the Romans used to live off of the fish industry. But the site is actually quite far away from the lake, so it's a bit too far to really be a fishing village. They came up with a lot of explanations, maybe suggestions that the lake was bigger in the past and that this Bethsaida, this excavated area, was on the lake in the history. Maybe because of earthquakes and tectonic plate movements, the landscape was changed. Maybe there was a bigger river that gave access to the lake directly, so that it was kind of a fishing village, but not on the lake, but on a river. But then, in 2017, archaeologists found another site a bit closer to the lake at El Araj, where they discovered the remains of a Roman bathhouse, which first of all means that the lake was not bigger in the time of Jesus, because if there was a Roman bathhouse from that particular time frame, then the lake 
couldn't be bigger because there was an actual village. And it also means that there was another village closer to the lake. And then when in 2019 they did another dig there, they found the remains of a Byzantine church. And Byzantine churches were built at locations where there was a veneration of something that happened during the time of the Bible. And it became clear that this town had been venerated in early Christian times as the town of the apostles Andrew and Peter. And the latest discovery is a mosaic that is inscribed with a petition to the head and leader of the heavenly apostles, which is assumed to be St. Peter. So these findings strengthened the claim of El Araj, the second archaeological site closer to the Lake of Galilee, to be the real Bethsaida. Still, Atel, the original location thought to be Bethsaida, is interesting for archaeologists because they also found a much older Iron Age site below the Roman village. And they believe that this was the ancient capital of the kingdom of Geshur, that was a fortified city with massive city walls, with a big monumental gate. And according to the Bible, King David married one of the daughters of the king of Geshur, because he attempted always these political marriages with neighbor nations. So it's still a very interesting archaeological site to visit if you are interested in the history of the land. Now, the other two towns that I mentioned that Jesus cursed are Chorazin and Capernaum. And it's interesting to know that these three towns were destroyed by a massive earthquake. Bethsaida, Chorazin and Capernaum suffered from an earthquake. And some would say that this was the result of the curse. But then again, earthquakes are very common in the region and almost every hundred years there is a devastating earthquake in this region. And the last one was about 100 years ago. So you can make your calculations. You can visit Chorazin and Capernaum. Chorazin is national park. You pay an entrance fee. And most of what you will see when you visit Chorazin dates from the 3rd and 4th century. So that's several hundred years after Jesus' time. It's a well-excavated village with a lot of remains of foundations of dwellings, of houses. There is a synagogue, a ritual bath, a mikveh, and olive presses. And all of these were built up of the local natural basalt stone. This is very different from the stone that we find around the Jerusalem area, which is white limestone. It is a very dark colored stone, and it is the remains of volcanic activity in this area. Now, as we're going down south, the next stop on the lake is Capernaum. And in Jesus' time, this was an important fishing village and an important market. But not only that, it was also a frontier post, meaning that it was on the border between the territory of Herod Antipas and the territory of his brother, Herod Philippi. And because the important Via Maris trade route that connected Egypt to Damascus 
was going right through here. This was the place where traders had to pay taxes. And one of the tax collectors actually became a follower of Jesus. His name was Levi, his Hebrew name, but in Greek he was called Matthew. And that's why we read about Levi and Matthew, the two different names for the same tax collector. He was called by Jesus to follow him here in Capernaum, where he was situated collecting taxes on the border area. And being on the border area was also very helpful for the quick spreading of the messages of Jesus and of the stories of his miracles, because they happened right at the point where many traders passed by. So they would easily take those stories and spread them around the whole region, which was the only way to spread news in the times before social media, TV, radio, and so on was by messengers. And Jesus chose Capernaum to be his home after he left his family in Nazareth. He seems to have lived with his friend and follower, Peter, who was originally from Bethsaida, but lived in Capernaum with his wife in the house of his mother-in-law. And in one of the miracle stories, we read also that Jesus heals his mother-in-law from being very sick. It's also written in the Gospels that Jesus used to teach at the synagogue in the town and that the people were very impressed by his teachings because he spoke like somebody with authority. He didn't sound just like any scribe who was reading the text without understanding it, but he really knew how to explain the texts. He did several other miracles in Capernaum. The most known one is probably the story of the paralytic man, a paralyzed man that was lowered down on a mattress through a hole in the roof to reach Jesus inside the house because it was so crowded outside that they didn't manage to get the man in the house. Now you have to realize that the houses in those days did not have concrete roofs and ceilings, so they didn't have to dig an actual hole in the house. Most likely the roofs were made of bunches of reeds and twigs and hay and grass hold together with some mud. So it was quite easy to make a hole in them to then lower down this paralytic man. Jesus also healed the daughter of Jairus, who was the leader of the local synagogue. And his daughter seemed to have passed away. But Jesus told her to get up. And in Aramaic, he told her, Tabita kumi. And in Arabic, kumi also means get up. Talita Kumi is the actual name of my kid's school. So then I realized that the name of their school is coming from this story when Jesus told the daughter of Jairus to get up, Talita Kumi, and she got up and lived. So these are some of the important miracle stories around the town of Capernaum. When you visit Capernaum today, you have to pay an entrance fee of five shekels to enter the site. It is administered by the Franciscan Custody of the Holy Land. And you will see the excavated houses of the village on your left and in front of you. And just like in Chorazin, these were all built of the dark basalt blocks that are locally found. The houses do not stand as one piece anymore. You mainly see the outlines of the houses and the foundations. But one of these houses 
seems to have been venerated since a very early time as the house where Jesus stayed. And as archaeologists have reconstructed it, it seems that the room where he used to live in the house of St. Peter's mother-in-law started to become visited after Jesus had left the world. And they found some carvings of the names of Jesus and Peter. And Jesus was mentioned as Lord and Christ in the Greek language. And people came together here as a sort of house church. And then it seems that the room was not big enough to contain all the visitors. So they enlarged the room and it became a visited place to commemorate the person of Jesus. And then in the 5th century, in the Byzantine time, they built an actual octagonal church around the house. So it was larger and it could host even more people. And the octagon shape in the Byzantine time was very common. We see that a lot for shrines that were built to commemorate on a certain location something related to the life of Jesus or to the biblical stories. The octagon was called a martyrium in Latin or a martyrion in Greek, and that means witness. So these octagon-shaped buildings were a witness to an important biblical event. We saw this, for example, also at the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem, where the first church built by Constantine was in an octagon shape. And the same goes for the Holy Sepulchre Church in Jerusalem. Also, the first church had this eight-sided octagon shape. And now, this site, so the room where Jesus is said to have lived, and the remains of this Byzantine church, they are now protected by a new building that has also an octagon shape, but it is much bigger, so it covers the whole site. But unlike Normal churches that are built over ancient sites, this new building is not built on the ground. It hoovers over the archaeological site. It almost looks like a flying ship, maybe in reference also to the profession of much of his apostles who were actually fishing men. And then Jesus actually told them that you will become from fishing men, fishers of men which meant that he gave them the duty to bring more people on to believe in his messages. But yeah, the building that was built and opened in 1990, it's very new, gives us the opportunity to look at the archaeological remains, both from the ground level, but we can also climb up the stairs into the building. And the building is made mainly of steel and glass, and it has a glass floor, which gives you the opportunity to look down. And then you look down straight into the room in Peter's house where Jesus supposedly lived. So that is what most pilgrims come to see when they come to Capernaum. The other thing that they come to see is a 5th century synagogue that is across from this building, from the place where Jesus supposedly lived. And this synagogue was completely in ruins. It was, uh, after all the different earthquakes, shattered into different pieces. But after excavating the site 
and finding many pieces, they kind of puzzled it back together and they have partially rebuilt the synagogue, which gives us a good idea of what it looked like. It is made of white limestone, so that means it was imported from other parts of Palestine, the southern part, because as I said, in this area we find only the black basalt stone, a remains of the volcanic activity in the area. Now, this is not the synagogue in which Jesus preached. This is a later synagogue from later time. But it is possible that the previous synagogue, the one that Jesus preached in, was on the same location. Because it is clear that underneath this synagogue, there is a foundation, a layer of basalt stone that seems to have been the foundation for a big public building. So, of course, for pilgrims, this is sold as the most possible location for the synagogue where Jesus preached, that the new one, the white one, was built over the original one. And the synagogue of Jesus' time was built by a Roman centurion, which is quite interesting, but it seems that further away from the political center of Jerusalem, the relations between the Romans and the Jews may have been better. And this centurion also had strong beliefs in the power of Jesus because he asked Jesus to heal his servant who was very sick. And he told Jesus that he didn't have to go meet the servant. He could just speak the words to heal him and it would be done. He said, the same way that I, as a centurion, command my soldiers to do something and they have to do it, the same with you. When you will command my servant to be well, he will be well. And Jesus really praised his faith. And of course, his servant was healed. And this you can read this in the book of Luke. And in Capernaum, another story happened. The collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and asked him whether Jesus was paying his temple tax, which was two drachme. And then Peter consults Jesus, who tells him that he shouldn't have to pay the temple tax, but that he doesn't want to cause any offense. So he sends Peter to the lake. He tells him to throw out a line and catch a fish, and that inside this fish he will find a four drachma coin that he can then use to pay the temple tax for Jesus and for himself. And that is what happens. And now, if you go eat in any of the tourist restaurants in Tiberias or in Magdala, around the Lake of Galilee, you can order St. Peter fish. It doesn't really exist. Nobody knows what kind of fish St. Peter really caught. But if you order St. Peter's fish, you will most likely be served uh, tilapia fish and lots of salads. If you pick the right restaurant, it's a really nice experience, although it can be a little bit on the expensive side, but you will enjoy it. And from here, from Capernaum, just a short distance away, closer to the lake, you can see the church with the red domes and the white walls of a Greek Orthodox church that is dedicated to the 12 apostles. I think this is one of the more photographed than visited churches on the lake, dedicated to the 12 apostles, most of them that came 
from this area and Jesus chose the 12 from his many followers somewhere on a mountain near the lake. This present building was built in 1931, but it was built on the location of a previous Byzantine church. And then in 1948, when the state of Israel was created, this church found itself in a demilitarized zone between Israel and Syria, because we're very close to the Syrian-occupied Golan Heights here. And the local Palestinian Christians and the foreign pilgrims that used to come to visit the church on the lake, they now had no longer access to this no-man's land. So the church and the monastery fell into decay, and the church was used for a while as a barn by some of the Druze residents of the area. Then in 1967, when Israel occupied the Golan Heights from Syria, the Greek Orthodox started coming back and they started renovating the church and they had to remove a thick layer of cow manure that was covering the floor after the Druze had used it as a barn. But it's been renovated in a beautiful way and between 1995 and 2000, the church was redecorated by a Greek iconographer who covered most of the ceilings and the walls with beautiful, brightly colored frescoes and icons. But as I said, most of the pilgrims do not visit this Greek Orthodox church, or let's say it's mainly the Greek Orthodox pilgrims that visit this church. Now, from here, we are going to continue more southwards towards Tabra. And the name Tabra is basically an Arabic corruption from the Greek name Eptapegon, which means the seven springs. And this is referring to seven warm water springs that entered the lake here at this point. And this warm water that came out of these springs into the lake would attract fish, especially in cold winters. So it was a very good place for local fishermen to cast out their nets and catch a lot of fish. In the years before 1948, there was a Palestinian village here at Tabra that had about 330 inhabitants. They lived here as farmers growing mainly wheat, some citrus and bananas. And then in 1948, on the 4th of May, the Zionist Palma forces drove out these Palestinians and they destroyed their homes. And Tabra was completely ethnically cleansed. They only left the churches and the monasteries that were there at that time. But nowhere in the landscape is there any sign or reference to that part of the history. When people visit Tabra, they come to visit two sites, the Church of St. Peter Primacy and a bit further down, the Church of the Multiplication. The Church of St. Peter Primacy is where they remember the first meeting of Peter with Jesus after he had denied three times that he knew him. This happened in Jerusalem on the night that Jesus was arrested and before he was trialed and crucified. It is the first time that Peter sees Jesus after the crucifixion and resurrection. So goes the story. Jesus was on the shore 
at the Lake of Galilee, preparing a fire to make a breakfast for the disciples who were on the lake and they had been fishing all night and they had no idea that Jesus was there waiting for them and they had not been successful at all. They didn't catch anything. And then Jesus calls out to them from the shore and tells them to try on the other side of the boat to cast the net on the right side of the boat. And then they can't believe their eyes because they didn't catch anything all night. And then all of a sudden they have a full net with 153 fish. They could barely even bring them in the boat. Now inside the St. Peter Primacy Church, which is a very nice small basalt stone church, there is a piece of natural bedrock in the church. So the church is basically built around this particular piece of bedrock. And that is because it is believed that this was the place where Jesus made them the charcoal fire to prepare the breakfast for them. And this piece of bedrock is called the mensa Christi, the table of Christ. During the breakfast, Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him. And Peter answers him three times that he does. And then it seems that Jesus wanted to cancel out the three times that Peter had denied him. And after Peter confirms three times that he loves him, Jesus tells Peter three times to feed his lambs, to tend his sheep, and to feed his sheep. And here it is understood by Christians that Jesus gave Peter the leadership over the church and over all the other apostles. So that's why the church is called the Peter Primacy Church, because he became the first one among the apostles. And in a previous podcast episode about Banias and Caesarea Philippi, I told you that Jesus has already said to Peter that he was given the insight by God himself that Jesus was the Messiah. And then he called Peter the rock on which he would build his church. And he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And this is understood by most Christians quite literally that Peter holds the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And the Pope in Rome is seen as the apostolic successor to St. Peter and the head of the worldwide Catholic Church, based on this story. The other beautiful church to visit at Tabra is the Church of Loaves and Fishes, or the Church of the Multiplication. And this is just a little bit south of the Church of St. Peter Primacy. This church commemorates the miracle in which Jesus wants to feed 5,000 people who have followed him to listen to his teachings, but who don't have any food on them. And then they only find a boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. So I think his mother must have been a great mom who packed him a lunch package for the day. And then he has to share that with 5,000 people. But Jesus blesses the food, starts sharing it, breaks off the bread, divides pieces of the fish, And it keeps going and he feeds all those 5,000 people and they even collect 12 baskets of leftover food after everyone is satisfied. Now, this miracle is said in the Bible to have taken place on the other side of the lake. 
near Beit Saida. But it seems that it was a little bit more convenient for the pilgrims in the Byzantine time to choose a place a bit closer to the other holy sites so they wouldn't have to make the whole trip on foot around the lake across the River Jordan to reach the real Bethsaida. So this location in Tabra is where the story became commemorated since Byzantine time. Now, before I continue to talk about the church itself, it is also interesting to mention that the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fishes for 5,000 people was mentioned in all the four Gospels, in all the four books of the first books of the Bible. But Matthew and Mark mention another miracle of multiplication. And that happened, according to them, when Jesus was preaching on the southeastern side of the Lake of Galilee in an area that was known as the Decapolis. This area of the Decapolis had 10 Greco-Roman cities that were not inhabited by Jewish people, but by what they called Gentiles. They were of Greek, Roman, and other descent. They were sent there by the Greeks and later by the Roman Empire to form a kind of city-state of Greek and Roman culture and architecture and have trade relations there on the border of the empire. So the inhabitants of the Decapolis were not Jewish. And in this area, around 4,000 people, non-Jewish people, came out to listen to Jesus. And the same story, they didn't bring any food and there were no villages nearby. So Jesus wants to feed them and they find seven loaves of bread. Jesus blesses the food, shares it, and everybody has enough. And they even have seven baskets of food left over. Now, many theologists will explain the two miracles as a sign that the message of Jesus was meant not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And because in ancient literature, numbers are usually very symbolic, they would say that the number seven in this story, they had seven loaves and they had seven baskets left over, is important because according to the Bible, God created the world and he created it in six days and then had a rest day. So that's why a week has seven days. And seven is the number that represents completeness. So this emphasizes, again, the inclusiveness of Jesus' messages for everyone, not only the Jews, also the Gentiles. Now let's visit the church at Tabra, the church of loaves and fishes, or the church of the multiplication. Inside the present church, you can see the remains of beautiful Byzantine church floor mosaics. They found them and incorporated them in the new church. And these mosaics are really pretty. There are many different types of animals, especially birds. Different types of plants are depicted. Many of those are not from the region, but are more common in the Nile Delta in Egypt. And there's even a very well-preserved mosaic of the Nilometer that was an instrument used for measuring the water level of the Nile. And it seems that the mosaic artists may have come from Egypt and that they were inspired 
by what they were used to see in Egypt rather than what was around them around the Lake of Galilee. But the most known mosaic in this church is right in front of the current altar. It depicts a basket in which you can see two fish and four loaves of bread. This image is very often used in brochures and on postcards. You will see them in souvenir stores all over the country. I had seen it many times and I had never noticed that actually there are four loaves of bread, not five. So when I learned about this in the Bible college, I was surprised to realize that this is not a mistake. It is very symbolic because Christians believe that Jesus himself is the fifth loaf of bread and that his body is the living bread. It is consumed during the Eucharist in the church when Christians eat a piece of bread and they drink a sip of wine. That symbolizes, for some Christians, it doesn't symbolize, it actually becomes the blood and the body of Christ who died to redeem the sins of the people. So the fifth loaf of bread is on the altar is the bread that is being eaten during the Eucharist celebration where they eat the bread, the body of Christ. I know it's a little bit complicated, especially if you are not familiar with Christian belief, but Jesus is the final sacrifice that replaced all the other sacrifices that ancient peoples used to do to appease God. Now for our final stop, we will go up to the hill that gives us a great view over the lake and from where we can look down on all the sites that we have visited, Betsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum and Tabra. Pilgrims refer to this hill as the Mount of Beatitudes. This is where they remember the Sermon on the Mount, a speech that Jesus gave that can be found in the book of Matthew. And it can be summarized as an important lesson about worldly power and possessions, that those are not important, that God takes care of people and especially of those who are struggling in this life. And I will quote from the Bible the eight Beatitudes, as they are called, and you can also see these Beatitudes written down on big blocks of stone around the Church of the Beatitudes on top of the mount. And you will find these eight Beatitudes also inside the church in Latin script. The church is built in an octagon shape, again, but in this way it also represents the eight Beatitudes. And the church was designed by Antonio Barluzzi, the famous Franciscan architect who built nine churches in the Holy Land. And I have mentioned him before in previous episodes. So from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, these are the Beatitudes. And I think when I read them, you may realize that you have heard about them. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be fulfilled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's not with any kind of certainty that Jesus spoke those words here on this mountain. The mountain, by the way, was also known as Mount Eremos, which is a Greek word that means solitary or uninhabited. And it is often said that this hill has so many rocks and stones that it wasn't suitable to be used for farming. So that is then used as an argument why Jesus would have chosen this uncultivated mountain where he could gather lots of people without being on the land of any farmer who was using it. And they also found two churches from the 4th and the 7th century or remains of these churches on the slope of the hill. And that could also attest to an early veneration of this mountain as the Mount of the Beatitudes. I don't think it really matters. And I don't think to most people it really matters where it was. Was it exactly here or another mountain? Most pilgrims come here to really enjoy the serenity of the location and the beautiful views that you have here over the valley. We ended our pilgrimage day trip here just as the sun was setting, which gave the Lake of Galilee that beautiful golden shine that is very famous in Palestine. The last hour of a sunny day, we call it the golden hour. And as the sun sets over the Galilee, I want to finish this podcast episode If you are interested in visiting the Lake of Galilee in the future with a guided tour, you know who to contact. Thank you for listening. Please consider supporting the podcast with a donation. It is free to listen, but there are costs involved in the production and quite a lot of time. It's very much appreciated if listeners chip in and you can already do that with a couple of bugs on the Kofi page. You can find the link in the show notes as well as other links to the social media accounts and the website. I hope you will tune in again for the next episode every other week, a new one.